Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, if you're a guest with us uh, this morning, I want to let you know that uh, here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, we teach through the Word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we're currently in the midst of going through the book of Exodus, uh, but we are pausing in that study this Lord's Day to look at a text that so clearly explains to us what it means to be born again that clearly teaches us about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Every time we gather as a church, we celebrate the resurrection, but this is a day that we join with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are celebrating the resurrection this Lord's Day. And so as we do that, it's fitting that we look to a text that speaks to us so clearly about the resurrection. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. And because this is the inspired Word of God, and we revere it as such, if you are able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what God's inspired Word says to us, handed down through the Apostle Peter, filled with the Spirit as he wrote these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we come to You now in Christ alone as we just sang reminded through those words and through Your Word of the power of the resurrection. And so, Father, I pray in this time we have this day, this Lord's Day, when we celebrate the resurrection, I pray in this time, Lord, that You might empower us through Your Spirit to discern Your words and to respond to them. And so, Father, lead us to truth now through Your Word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a man named Simon Bar Kosova claimed to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The city of Jerusalem responded to him by singing Star of Jacob as he would go down the road. It seemed that finally God had provided a Messiah for the Jewish people who would overtake the Roman powers, and that's exactly what it seemed happened. 
In 132 AD, he captured Jerusalem along with his followers and he ruled it as an independent state for two and a half years until the next battle with the Romans when he lost. This man who claimed to be the Messiah, Simon Bar Kosovo, was defeated, he was executed, and he was buried. 1,500 years later, a rabbi named Sabbatai Zevi led a messianic movement that attracted thousands of Jews who believed that he would lead them back to the promised land. In 1666, he was captured and imprisoned by the sultan of modern-day Turkey. He was given a choice, convert to Islam and live, or continue to believe he was the Messiah and die. And so this man who had claimed to be the Jewish Messiah converted to Islam. He became a Muslim. He was rewarded for his confession, released from prison, and he went on to lead many of his followers to convert to Islam as well. 300 years later, catching us up to a modern day, there was an aging rabbi named Menachem Shirsnan. He thought that he too was the long awaited Messiah and many hailed him as the true Messiah in fact his his followers referred to him simply as the rabbi they would say often Moses was the first redeemer and the rabbi is the last redeemer estimates are that at least 300,000 Jews believe this man was the Messiah even as he was dying paralyzed by a series of strokes His followers believed he would recover and come to Israel and rebuild the temple. These three men lived during very different centuries, but they all made a similar claim. And many others like them have made that claim. And many others have shared in their fate. They have died. But we gather today to celebrate the one who not only made this claim, but was the one true Messiah who not only went to the cross and died for our sins, but conquered sin and death when He was resurrected. Our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. And in doing that, He defeated sin and death once and for all. That's why the Scripture reminds us in 2 Timothy 1 that our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality through the Gospel. And so we gather today, friends, to celebrate the One who changed all of history and who all of history has pointed towards and is rooted in. We come to celebrate the One who not only made these messianic claims, but who conquered sin and death. So many have come after Him and said to follow them. So many have come after them and claimed to be some type of messianic prophet. But we come to celebrate the one true Christ today. I'm reminded of the words of French philosopher and writer Voltaire who was known of his criticism of Christianity, but even he understood what our faith rested on. He once said this, We need someone to found a new religion. Then all we need to compete with Christianity is for the founder to die and be raised from the dead. But friends, that has not happened with any other because we worship the one true Messiah, truly God and truly man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this text that we come to today, Peter is reminding our brothers and sisters in the faith that our faith rests fully in Christ. 
And he is writing to a group of believers who are in the midst of heavy persecution in the early church. A group of believers who are suffering for their faith. He is reminding them of the blessed hope we have in our Redeemer and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so friends, I think this is a very fitting passage for us today. Because we too are a people who live in time of persecution. We see persecution differently around the world. We are not facing yet in our nation what many are facing in theirs. But even here in our own nation, we see Christians being persecuted. We see a society that says to be tolerant of everything, to celebrate diversity, but when one makes an absolute claim on the absolute truth of God's Word, then we are told not to be tolerant of that. Our message is one of truth but our message is one that is not accepted by many. And around the world, we see that not just being not accepted, we see Christians suffering greatly for their faith in Christ. If you turned on the news over the last week, you saw probably the news story that came out of last Lord's Day. Uh, There, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as they gathered in Egypt, as they gathered that Palm Sunday, Terrorists had planted bombs and those bombs went off and at least 40 of our brothers and sisters in the faith lost their life that day. In fact, just yesterday as I had the news on, my 10-year-old daughter came in and she saw this uh, picture that kind of perplexed her. It was a picture of churches around the world that were surrounded by military and by armed guards. People were going through checkpoints to go into these churches and she didn't understand that. And so I tried to explain to her that so many who will gather this Lord's Day will gather with the understanding that the bomb may go off while they are hearing the Word taught. That they may lose their life that day for the sake of the Gospel. We are seeing persecution today more than any other time, any other point in history. More of our brothers and sisters in the faith will lose their lives for the sake of the Gospel around the world. And the day may soon come, friend, where that's true of us. We are already seeing in our culture those who are losing their livelihoods because of their stand on the gospel. And the day may come in our nation when we will lose our lives as well. And so it's very fitting then that we come to this text that reminds us of the hope we have no matter what persecution, what suffering, what trial may come our way. It is rooted, our hope, in the Gospel of Jesus. And so I want to walk through these verses today and just point out a few of the things that come to us as a result of the resurrection, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. We have a living hope in a dying world. Uh, Peter here reminds his readers, verse 3, of their living hope. He says, you have a hope that is alive. And that hope that's alive, that's living, is so different than everything else in the world because everything else in the world is dying, is perishing, is fading. But we hold on to a hope in the Gospel that is alive. He says we have been born again into this hope. That's a phrase that's probably familiar to so many in our culture today. It's been reduced to a a demographic label. (laughs) Now, how did those who are born again vote? What do those who are born again believe? And unfortunately, we've kind of moved away from what the Scripture says it actually means to be born again in the first place. 
And you may recall that phrase being mentioned in the Gospels in John chapter 3. Now, there's a Pharisee in Jesus' day who comes to him. His name is Nicodemus. This man understands the law of God. He has read the law. He has memorized the law. But he sees this one who is teaching radically different than any other rabbi or teacher of the law. And so he comes to him. He, he affirms him. He says, Jesus, we, we, we know that you've come from God. Jesus quickly turns this conversation to one of what it takes to repent and be redeemed. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus, if you remember the passage, he responds rather confused to this. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And all the mothers in here say, well, that ain't how it works. You ain't, you ain't going back in there. And so Nicodemus is confused. Jesus says, you need to be born again. And he's thinking, okay, how, how does this work? And then Jesus explains to him, he's not just talking about a physical birth. Everybody in this room this morning, we've, we've experienced a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning. That takes us all the way back to the garden where God created Adam and Eve, where He put them in a paradise, a sanctuary, where He gave them everything they would ever need and in His instruction to them said they could eat from any tree in the garden but one. He gave them a boundary. He was reminding them that He was God, they were not. They had dominion over that garden. He had dominion over all things. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed Him. And in their sin, God gave consequence. In that consequence, He said that death would now come. From the dust you've come, Adam, to the dust you'll return, he told him. But he also gave a promise. He said a Redeemer would one day come who would crush the head of the enemy, who would conquer sin and death, who would take people who have hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, who would take people who are dead in their trespasses and sin and make them alive together in Christ. They would be born again. Peter here comes back to that phrase and reminds us that for those of us who have responded to that gospel call to repent and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have shared in this second birth. We have been born again. We read in Romans how that takes place. Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You too will have a living hope. And with that living hope, we see this great contrast between that which is alive and that which is dead. We have a living hope in a dying world. Peter here reminds us of that as he explains the, the, the inheritance that comes with this living hope. Verse 4, he says, it is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. It will not perish. Friends, what else can you say that of? Is there anything in the world today that you can go out and buy or obtain that will one day not be gone? Think about the things we pride our lives on so much. The homes, the cars, the boats, the stuff we work to buy. One day they will be gone or they will be poor shells of what they once were. And this is how it's always been. 
Going back four and a half centuries before the birth of our Lord Jesus, there was a Greek historian named Herodotus. Herodotus was the first one to coin the phrase, wonders of the world. And so in his day, in the the 400 B.C.s, he began to chronicle what he felt were the great wonders of the world, seven of them. And so he wrote about the great uh, statue of Zeus there on Mount Olympus. He, he wrote and chronicled the great temple uh, of Artemis there at Ephesus. He, he wrote about the great hanging gardens of Babylon. And of those things, he said this, these are the most magnificent creations and they will stand the test of time for generations to marvel at. And yet of that list, only one stands today. The Great Pyramid. And friends, one day it too will fall. Along with all the modern wonders of the world, the Great Wall of China, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, these things will follow the course of history and they will one day be turned to rubble. Everything in the world is fading. And Peter here reminds us that our Gospel is built on that which does not fade. Our gospel is built on that which is imperishable, that which is undefiled, that which is unfading. And so the the Scriptures remind us over and over again that as followers of Christ, this is our perspective we're to have of the things of this world. We are to hold rather loosely to them because they are passing away. That's why the Apostle John says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Paul says it this way in his letter to the Corinthians, for this present form of, the present form of this world is passing away. And our Lord Jesus, of course, in Matthew 24 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so friends, as we come to this, it's important to ask ourselves the question, then today, you, every one of us, Are we living for that which is perishing and fading and passing away? Or are we living for that which is imperishable and unfading and will stand eternally? What are you living for? Well, what do you care most about? What will be the legacy that you leave behind? Because friends, at the end of the day, this is what you and I will leave. Two dates and a dash. I recently was just riding around with my son, 17, soon to turn 18. We were just talking about life and his future. He's about to go to college and just happened to pull into one of the cemeteries. And as I went through that cemetery, I showed him the graves, the headstones of some of our dear friends, brothers and sisters who've gone on to be with the Lord. Went to another cemetery, showed him those things. And as I did, I turned to him and said, son, you look right there you're going to leave behind a dash. What's that dash going to represent? See, at the end of the day, friends, all the things you've accomplished, all the money you've made, all the things you've built, you won't take them with you. At the end of the day, you and I will each leave behind a legacy. And the question this morning is, will that legacy be rooted in those things which will never perish? Or will that legacy be rooted in things that will quickly fade away, get outdated, and be replaced by the next guy? Peter here reminds us that our hope is not built on the things of this world. Those things are dying. Our hope is built 
on a living hope. He also reminds us, point two, that we have then an eternal joy in the midst of temporal suffering. Point two there, we have an eternal joy in the midst of temporal suffering. Peter writes here in verse 6 that as a result of being born again, we can rejoice even when we have been grieved by various trials. That word in the Greek for rejoice means to be extremely joyful, to be overjoyed. And so this can be a bit perplexing for us. I mean, to be overjoyed, to be elated about something that's a trial and that's suffering, how does that look? Well, let me tell you what I don't believe Peter is saying here. I don't believe what Peter is saying to those who are suffering trials. Listen, you need to turn that frown upside down. Well, Peter, I don't feel like turning that frown upside down. Well, you need to fake it till you make it. You need to put on your happy face. You need to have the joy of the Lord. Now notice what Peter says here. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So in the same verse, he says, be overjoyed, and he says, grieve. Be happy, be sad. Rejoice, be sorrowful. Now to the world, and perhaps to some of you this morning, that makes no sense at all. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. How can you be happy and sad at the same time? How can you have joy and grief at the same time? But what he is telling us is that as followers of Christ, in the midst of our grief and sorrow, we still have reason to have great hope and have great joy. And he says grieve. He doesn't tell us not to grieve. But he tells us to grieve as those who have hope. And we see this nowhere more clearly than how Christians are instructed to deal with death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in writing about those who have died, the reference here is those who've fallen asleep, it, it says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And so the Scripture tells us, brothers and sisters in Christ, what we are to grieve death, but not as those who have no hope. And sometimes we're, we're tempted just to skip right over that whole grief thing. And yeah, the Scripture says, no, we, we should grieve. Death is a great enemy. We should grieve that. And my family was here in the first service, and I, I reminded everyone that I've reminded them that when I die, they better cry. I mean, they better be laid out on the floor weeping and wailing when I'm gone. It better look like a Middle Eastern funeral up in here. We want to have a wailing wall lined up for my wife and kids. Because they should hate sin and death. Remember how Jesus responded to death? He comes there to the tomb of Lazarus whom he loved and he weeps. He hates it. The, the Scripture actually when you translate that passage says he was angry. He hated that death had come. He hated the consequence of sin. We should grieve when people die. Oh, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. See, we're reminded in death as we grieve that our hope is not in this world, is it? But our hope is in the world to come. And so, notice what he tells the believers here. He says, listen, you can rejoice. Why? Verse 6, because you're grieving. It's for a little while. 
It's temporal. It's not going to last. Just like we sang just a few moments ago, there's a day coming when there's no more tears and death and mourning. There's a day coming when all this is done away with. When Christ says, I will make all things new. This temporal suffering. We, we in the midst of it, should have a gospel hope. In fact, in the midst of suffering, we should, we should have a hope in the vastness of eternity. I've given this illustration before. Imagine you were to somehow take, take a string this morning, and I could hold that string here in Bloomfield, and, and you could go clear to the other side of the country with that string and someone could stand on the coast of California and someone could stand here in Bloomfield and we could hold this string that would stretch for thousands of miles and then one of us went to to Kansas that desolate flat land and there in the middle of Kansas they just took out a sharpie and they just put a little speck on that string that that doesn't begin to illustrate the vastness of eternity when compared to the temporal nature of this world. And so Peter here, he, he puts our suffering in perspective by saying, listen, it's, it's for a little while. And there's a day coming when, when there won't be any more. We're, we're not there yet. And so until we're there, he says, we're going we're gonna to suffer. In fact, he says, we're going to suffer various trials. That word various in the Greek means diversified or, or many colored. But what Peter is saying here is that, listen, Christian, you're, you're going to suffer, but we're all not going to suffer the same way. Suffering is not proportional in the life of believers. And so some of us in this room, some of us in this room are never going to struggle financially. Some of us in this room have what others might refer to as a Midas touch. <laughs> And everything we do financially is going to go great. And others of us in this room are going to struggle and live paycheck to paycheck until the day we die. Some of us are never going to get ahead financially. Some of us are going to eat bacon for the glory of God every day of our life and live to be a hundred. And we're going to die in our sleep peacefully. And friends, some of us are going to work out every day and have a gluten-free diet, and we're not going to see anything close to 100. So we, we can't control those things as much as we think we can. Suffering comes, and it comes in different ways. Some of us will have children who faithfully walk with the Lord. Some of us will have children who run away from their faith. Some of us will suffer in a way that seems like just kind of waves and occasional storms. Other of us in our suffering, it will seem more like a flood and the waters never recede. Some of us will go through this life relatively trial-free. Others of us, it will seem like one after another after another they come. But Peter here tells us we, we don't all suffer the same amount. Our, our suffering is diversified. It's many colored. But He reminds us of the great God who comforts us in our suffering. And in fact, this Greek word He uses for various, He, he only uses this word one other time in this letter. You turn the page, go to chapter 4, and look where He uses it. There He's talking about the grace of God. 
He's talking about how God has gifted us and how God gives His grace to us. And notice what he says in verse 10 of chapter 4 there. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so notice how he uses that same word. On one hand, he says, our trials are varied. They're going to come in different forms. They're not going to be proportional. But listen, God's grace is varied in that God will give you exactly what you need. His grace is sufficient for whatever trial you go through. His grace is perfectly matched for the suffering of His people. Whether their suffering is little or their suffering is great, Because it is rooted, it is rooted in the gospel of Christ and in the resurrection of our Lord. And so as a result of these things, then we end this passage with this thought, point three. As a result of these things then, we can walk by faith and not by sight. We can walk by faith and not by sight this resurrection day. Notice what Peter writes. Verse 8, he says, Though... You have not seen Him, you love Him. Imagine this for a second. Imagine that you went up to a young man and he told you about the love of his life. And he described this love of his life and he talked about her and talked about her and talked about her. And then at some point in the conversation you said, well, hey, listen, can I see a picture of her? He said, well, I don't know what she looks like. I don't have a picture. I've never actually seen her. That would be a bit confusing, wouldn't it? <laughs> you might walk away going, oh, I'm not sure about that guy. That's not what Peter's saying. P- Peter here is not speaking of some romantic relationship between a young man and a young woman. He He's writing to the believer and he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter here is reminding us as believers that we we walk by faith, not by sight, but our faith is not a blind faith. And that's what some may walk away from this with. Whether you don't see Him and you're not seeing Him, well, that sounds like blind faith to me. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, faith is not a blind thing. For faith begins with knowledge. It's not a speculative thing. For faith believes facts on which it is sure. It's not an unpractical, dreamy thing. For faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Friends, you realize this morning that God has revealed Himself to you. We have seen. We have beheld His glory through His Word. We know who He is. He's revealed Himself to us. He's given us the great truth of His Word. He has invited us into this relationship with Him on His terms through repentance and faith. Ours is not a blind faith. Ours is a seeing faith. But what Peter is saying here is there are things not yet realized in our faith. And we look towards that day 
when we will see. That day when we will be with our Lord. And between this day and that, we place our faith fully and wholly in the Gospel of Jesus and in the resurrection of our Lord. And friends, what that means for you and I, this resurrection day, is that our faith must rest securely in Christ, wholly in Christ, and not in ourselves. We need to abandon this notion that so many of us have that somehow we're going to earn a place in heaven. That somehow we're going to stand before God one day and He's going to have a set of scales and if our good outweighs our bad, that then we're going to be okay. We need to abandon this notion that somehow we're going to stand before God and He's going to play a movie of our life and if we did enough good and didn't do so much bad, then we're going to be okay and we're going to get in. Friends, hear this. If your salvation and my salvation rested on our efforts, then the cross was foolishness. Then there's no reason to gather and celebrate an empty tomb today. But we gather and celebrate the empty tomb today because Christ did what we could not. He lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father. He who knew no sin took on sin on my behalf and yours that we might gain eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we need to just abandon this nonsense that somehow one day if we've just tried hard enough. I was reminded of this not long ago and I'll, I'll close with this. I was watching 60 Minutes years ago and they were doing an interview with Jack Welch. Many of you know that name. He's a former CEO of General Electric. He's long since retired, but still is a man of influence. He's written a number of books on leadership and business. He's still revered as a great business consultant. And here was this man who was sat in boardrooms with some of the wealthiest people in our day who's helped make decisions for some of the largest companies of our day. And during this interview, he was asked this question. What's the toughest question you've ever been asked? What's the toughest question you've ever been asked? And without hesitation, this is how Welch responded. The toughest question I've ever been asked is, do you think you'll go to heaven? And as he contemplated his answer to that question, he said this, if it's about caring for people, about giving it your all, about being a great friend, if it's about those things, I'm in no hurry to get there to find out anytime soon, but if it's about those things, I think I've got a shot. Friend, if your hope this morning rests in you thinking you have a shot, then you have missed the mark completely. See, our hope rests in what Christ did, not what in we do. And so we get into heaven, and not because we were a good friend. <laughs> but because Jesus Christ was a friend to sinners. 
We get into heaven not because we gave it our all. We get into heaven because Christ gave it His all on the cross where He died in our place for our sin. We don't get into heaven because we've lived a good life. We get into heaven because He lived a perfect life. We don't get into heaven because we try hard or keep a few promises. We get into heaven because He kept every promise and was obedient to the Father to the point of death. Friends, we don't get into heaven because we've emptied our lives of vices, emptied our minds of bad thoughts, emptied our bank accounts and given to charity. We get into heaven because God emptied that tomb. And He brought Christ to life. And Christ conquered sin and death on our behalf. And Peter reminds us today, friend, that is where we put our hope because that friend is imperishable. That friend is the only place where our hope can be rooted. It will never fade. It will never perish. It will never go out of style. It will reign eternally. So why will we put our hope and anything else. We're going to offer a time of response this morning. And this is an opportunity for each of us to place our hope fully in Christ. I'll be here to pray with anyone who wants to pray, anyone who wants to come and confess Christ or join this church. But this, this time of response is for all of us. Well, what better day than this day, this Resurrection Sunday, to go before the Lord, to turn from our self-dependence and our pride that says, I think I've done a pretty good job. And to go to the one who says of his son, well done, my good and faithful servant. And who invites us to be covered by the blood of that son that we too might hear one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. What better time, what better day to place your hope in Christ? And so if you would stand together now as I pray for us and as we sing together and pray together and respond to God's Word together. Father God, we do come to You in the name of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we come to You, that we would come to You as a, a confessing people. A people that confess our stubborn pride and our independence. A people who confess that so often we try to go it our own way. People that confess that so often we've turned from You and Your Word and rebellion and sin. Pray we would come to You as a repentant people. As a people trusting in the Gospel and the Gospel alone. Lord, I pray that for those of us this morning who are suffering various trials, some so much more than others, that we be reminded, that we be encouraged, that our hope is not in the things of this world, but our hope is in the world to come. Lord, I pray this morning that You would set our hearts and minds on eternity. And on that great picture we see in Revelation 21, that, that picture of no more tears, no more crying, no more death, that picture of our Lord who says, I am making all things new. So Father, we pray that that would be our focus in this time of response. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.